Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by John Philippe Ruhumuliza. And I have been enjoying your work online, uh, helping Adventists think in radical ways. So thanks for your Radical Adventist project. But I'm uh, hoping to jump into some of your graduate work and also your, the ways that you're uh, thinking about Christianity and consciousness as well. So thanks for joining me for this conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for the invitation. So let's jump in to where I first uh, discovered uh, you. I found your YouTube videos under the uh, Radical Adventist Project, and uh, I found myself enjoying thinking about breathing. So what are you doing with breathing and scripture? So <clears throat> I, this kind of come, this came from the COVID thing, right? Because all of a sudden, I my whole Adventist experience and, and my whole experience in general has been really frontal lobe heavy. So I'm, I'm big on problem solving, big on organization, big on systems. Uh, and as we were shutting down and I was finishing my thesis, fighting through that process, and then with my family, my wife and I were reorienting in this new reality. And with all of the, I mean, just heavy stress, you know, I found myself getting quite angry and I couldn't identify why. And so I was lashing out you know, verbally and I was like getting angry at my wife, getting angry. And then my wife says, I don't, I don't like this. You need to fix this. And so I started just in my morning devotions, I just started taking a step back and I stumbled across a couple of cognitive, you know, because I'm a big uh, proponent of uh, mental health and and these processes. And I started seeing these cognitive therapists talking about mindfulness, and they started detaching it from a lot of the uh, some of the more mystical elements of that that have made me uncomfortable in the past, right? And they and they highlighted that this wonderful world of it's not not thinking, but it's just about reengaging how we think. And that was a light switch for me. And so I started, you know, messing around with it. Then I found Wim Hof doing this crazy stuff about these deep breathing methods. And um, I saw the research. I saw the, the significant benefits to our mental and physiological health neuro and neuroscience and all that other stuff. And so I was like, let me give it a shot. And that kind of, that's how it developed into this like deep breathing devotional that I, I, kind of started and am still developing. Yeah. Well, great. I enjoyed it in part because I'm familiar with some kind of scripture meditation techniques uh, like Lectio Divina, for instance. Hmm. And I, I like the way that you mixed, um, you know, sort of the, the Wim Hof method with uh, scripture for, for long stretches of time. You know, you talked about being a sort of frontal lobe guy and a Adventists are, you know, very focused on a very kind of 
let's say, a, a let us reason together process of faith. Uh, and, you know, you have, uh, I noticed you've presented with some spectrum friends like Doug Morgan. Uh, you've presented at the Adventist uh, Historian Society. So you uh, know how to put together a paper that links facts together. Can you talk a little bit about how you bring those two or what you found in sort of bringing uh, an attention to the body as well as the mind uh, and, and what you've gained from that? Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. This is where Adventism is a gem for me because in the implicitness of our, of our practices is this calling for holistic practices. So we are after, so, but we overemphasize through our Western mindset, this, this really aggressive thought process, like, you know, this, we, we misinterpret, come and let us reason. And then we get scared about silence and being alone with God mm -hmm. and we don't know how to listen. And so I, I've always enjoyed the processes of thinking. And then I just found that when the opportunity in the science kind of starts coming in talking about how you can actually open up the blood flow to your entire brain and how that, and how your brain can, you know, connects your entire body and it, and it helps with your breathing and breathing helps with your health and sleep and that you don't need drugs. <laughs> All you need is, you know, sunlight. And so this is new start. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. so I found that as I started applying this, not only was I thinking better, so my, my logical reasoning was becoming more refined, but my relational qualities were, were improving as well. So I found that I just, it's kind of like a missing piece. We, we have kind of stigmatized natural processes while at the same time we, we, we ch uh, uh, champion, you know, natural living styles and, and all of these different health outcomes. And then we have this wonderful untapped resources, our brain, our breathing, uh, just the connection, the mind-body connection. Um, and we have all these building blocks in the, in the process within Adventism that, that are kind of poking at this. Mm -hmm. And so this, to me, seems like kind of just that, that front end, um, head, head forward kind of way into this, into this um, opportunity, I think, Adventists have. Um, and yeah, it's been enjoyable. It's been a nice process. Um, you know, I want to talk about your work there at uh, Emory University at the Candler School of Theology in a second here. But um, while I've got you on this topic, what do you say to Adventists who hear meditation and freak out or hear some, something about uh, uh, sort of um, intentional spirituality and, you know, they think Jesuit or they think Ted Wilson might get mad at me if I do this? <laughs> um, how do you overcome yeah. those? Because you, I think, do a great job of connecting it to New Start. Uh, the, you know, if, if Ellen White's talking about the mind, which she does a lot, and the body, you know, she's definitely not a dualist, and that offers us an opportunity to kind of think in ways that are outside of the normal uh, sort of Western Christian tradition, yet there's a, there's a hesitation. How do you help folks understand where you're coming from? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the difficulties, like, so I have to recognize that I have my own bias. So I am more open. I take the reason thing seriously. And so I'm not as hesitant to engage scientific ideas. 
And I'm not, I'm not interested in just going faith alone. I believe God gave us this mind to think and to, and to really put our, our all into things, into life. Um, so on one end, it's like you just look at the journals, look at the studies, look at the potential that God has given us to, to take care of our own selves. And so, so there's that. There's also history that we can look at. We look back in the days of Ellen White, 19th century. We look back to the times of Paul or even further times of Abraham. What were their environments? This, is, this might be a transition into space and some of my other research. Mm-hmm. They were in secluded locations where, they, where bodies were adapted to cir- the circadian rhythms of the moon and the, the sun and the stars and, and, and their environment. They had moments of, of silence and moments of community and all of these things inherent and these are the time periods in our human history where we see the development of all of our spiritual texts. So that's not a coincidence. Likewise, you kind of see a, a kind of dumbing down of a lot of our spiritual texts in today's writing. I mean, of course, there are gems. I mean, people just come out. There's some powerful theologians all around, spiritual thinkers. But overall, you're not canonizing the stuff in the same way. It's not, it's not taken in as, as something that is so life-forming. Uh, we don't look at it the same way. And, and so this is a process of, of taking seriously the rhythms of our body that God has given us. And I, I don't think that's something that's contrary. And then the final thing is it's not about turning off our mind. That was my for me, that was my biggest concern. I was like, I'm not here to stop thinking. I'm not here to turn off my mind so that alpha waves and the devil will come in and start, you know, t- moving my body. It's actually about understanding the difference between when you're thinking and when you are listening. You mm-hmm. know, it's a process of listening, listening to what I need in, in my body. And in that process, and you may see this in, in one of my radical postings. That's where I believe we get that vertical connection um, established. And that vertical connection is happening whether we point towards Messiah or we start going towards other things. And so I think this is a very important process that, again, is implied in a lot of our works that intentionally places us um, on divine footing. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm not... I know people are hesitant because they have so many, uh, there's these um, catchwords we use, right? Just mindfulness or um, center your mind or center prayer or, co- you know, contemplation. And all of these are trigger words to, to keep us away from this process. But breathing, you know, air, nutrition, light, you know, there's common sense things that we're doing, that they are doing, that they do in their prayer practices that we all do. And it's just a process actually thinking about that process and, and really being intentional and doing what it's working and, and throwing out what's not. So there's a way into it. Part of it's terminology. And then part of it's just kind of, I guess, thinking about it and, and realizing what we're trying to do. Yeah. So you mentioned space a little bit there. And as you were talking about our direction or our attention towards Messiah or other things. Also, I thought about um, the way that uh, our relationships, our physical relationships connect to our spiritual relationships. You um, did some work in graduate school along these lines. Can you talk about um, what ideas you were exploring? 
Yeah. So it was very, rud- it's, it's very rudimentary as a master's thesis tend to be, you know, and you, you look in hindsight and you kind of slap your wrists a little bit, but I, I fell into um, looking at the stuff in med- in the Mediterranean world. And I started looking at the inscriptions and then I stumbled and I've been for a while now, for about five years, I've been thinking about Paul and I've been looking closely at the book of Colossians and then um, that, and I started questioning Colossae, right? It's this supposedly know nothing part of town in the middle of Asia Minor there. And that led me some questions, like, how do you get someone there? And I started looking at, so it's, it led me into these very interesting places about his work ethic, about work, what is work? How do you work? How do you build relationships? Just relationships are a thing, right? What is this faith? What is what does it mean uh, to build a network? Is this all of Paul's network, or is he working with something? And this brought me into the world of new in- institutional economics, GIS, and more importantly, the conversation about place and space. That's and that's where kind of where now my research is is really going into. Um, I tried to map it out literally uh, by using this technology, but also in challenging how I am using it. And so I, I started tapping into Lefavre's, uh, you know, third space, Soja and, and Lefavre, uh, these um, Marxist, <laughs> see trigger words again, but these wonderful, I mean, they have these wonderful perceptions about where we get involved with the interaction with our surroundings. And so not only is it about building relationships, but it's a question about what is the stuff between us that actually impacts our relationships. And, and so I started looking at the process of map building as this exploration of, of our interpretation of space and kind of our second, um, it's like a second layer of, uh, insight that we're placing on other people. We want people to be convinced that this line that I have drawn for Paul is cohesive with reality. And so we have these legends and tables and and red lines and blue lines and and dots with like or explosion marks with like key text assigned with it. And and my my critique was that all of these things are based upon one faulty exegesis that have not been updated, and two. Um, an assumption of a, a reader's assumption or a, a scholar's assumption of how Paul operated. Hmm. And so I tried to strip that down and, and look at, well, these are the pieces he's working with. This is how you build textile. This is how you build associations. Um, he's in textiles. And so that's important. Uh, and more importantly, we have these new technologies to where we're not limited to the historian or the scholar's interpretation. We have the ability now to use open source technology to invite the reader to offer an option, mm-hmm. uh, a route, and and to look at the impacts of what that does. And, and then I emphasize as a conclusion that where Paul is changes who he is. It changes who he's dealing with. And it's, it's, it's something we need to take seriously. If he's going north then he's dealing with a completely different uh, culture than if he's going south, if he's going sea route. And, and I, thought that was, I thought that was helpful. I thought, I, I'm hoping that that's, that's a helpful. It's been helpful for me to kind of prime the pump of thinking, how do we, how do I put a cap on this, this, I, this thought itself? How do we 
how do we come to terms with this wandering traveler who's able to build these networks and connections? How do we utilize what we have and how do we make something new with what we have? And yeah. I love that. Um, in, in part, it, it's helping me think about the ways that we sort of treat Paul, uh, Paul's, the writings associated with Paul and with sort of a flat, you know, everything interprets each other. And if we just link some texts from Philippians to Colossians to, uh, you know, uh, what we hear about him in Acts, you know, we have a, a, you know, we'll figure it out. But I think that you're helping me recognize that he was an actual human being dealing with other human beings with kind of, let's say, minor cultures, micro cultures, uh, whatever the term, what, I don't know what the proper term would be for the different, um, you know, communities of, of believers that he's talking with. But when people are talking about Romans or Corinthians, they're sort of trying to reconcile the, you know, some ultimate, uh, let's say, some absolute truth out of it. And yet those are uh, two different uh, worlds with people dealing with their own issues. Is that kind of what, you know, in part what you're, I mean, are we recognizing the relativism of Paul and that's part of what made him so good? I think, I think what we're, what I recognize and what I see in, in my readings of Paul, I, I see the theological expositions as kind of a later necessity in the competition of Judaisms, right? So out of the second century, you have, Jude, you know, rabbinism and then uh, Christianity that merge out of the, all of the, the plethoras of different uh, Judaisms around the Mediterranean sure. and the poor permutations and the Palestinian permutations. And now you have to wrestle with this. And then you have the fact that Paul's writings are being used by people like Marcion and the Gnostics mm-hmm. in an aggressive way to create a brand. <laughs> They're doing something completely different. Right. And so the Egyptians are cool with that, you know, and the Asian, you know, people in Asia Minor, they're, they're just not really following the Palestinian model. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you gotta, you gotta level those things out. And so Alexandria and Rome come in and they, they kind of save the day with orthodoxy. And, but Paul is not, I don't believe Paul writes in this way where it's like, I'm building a monolith, I'm building this theological thing. What he is doing. I believe stems from his trade. I, I, I emphasize that actually his work ethic and social networks and relationship building is what gives him um, the onus to write that way. If we look at the Mediterranean culture as a whole, every transaction, every relationship has the gods involved. And so it isn't strange for a merchant or a trader or, or a, a craftsperson to um, include an idol or a saying, or an amulet. People might be surprised to know that many Christians had magical amulets with all of these different gods, including Yahweh and other, other deities attached to that. I mean, to the chagrin, I mean, that's why you hear the fathers talking so negatively about magic and these things, because that's what on the ground is. Paul is on the ground following these natural trade networks for his craft, because he's living on what he does. And Attached to that is his deep devotion to Messiah, and he's working that out in conversation with these different communities, 
And with that, he is engaging conflicts, engaging uh, uh, cultural norms, cultural pushback in this effort to create a, com- a community or to maybe articulate the community he's experiencing, where you're seeing a diasporan, a diaspora Mediterranean Greco-Roman community following Messiah, you know, the, across the cultural lines. And so he's like, this is, it's a new creation. It's not, it's not Jew and Gentile circumcision, non-circumcision. This is something, Messiah has brought something new here. And he's trying to reckon with that. And he's wrestling with James and other people around who are also trying to articulate uh, this faith. And so this is a formative time that is coming from obligations and the, re- the repercussions of gift giving. Like it's, it's not free. Everything has a cost and the costs are involved with the gods. And we're, we're trying to introduce this new God who is now being placed a little higher on the shelves of the people they visit, right? The getting rid of the other gods hasn't happened yet. It's happening. It will. But this is something that is still forming, and that's Paul. It isn't, it isn't theologically developed all the way. It will, and he gives us the, the, the building blocks for that, and I, th- I think it's special. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, f- I find that really interesting. I, I, uh, I feel like I would love to hear um, maybe a two-hour uh, <laughs> lecture from you. <laughs> um, thinking about Paul in space and time, for instance, and I, I like that you draw our attention to the fact that he was um, working and he was engaged in commerce at the same time that he was creating communities. What and, 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 and that the commerce is not something distinct from re- religion. Hmm. I mean, we we think we think of these things as separate spheres now, hmm. but this is. It's it's not it's not strange to speak about God in your transaction here, and I think that's something that we're still having to wrestle with. And we read the text as if these are separate, and um, you know we take that Jesus text, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and but he's not. That's not the world he's living in. It's it's just uh, it's just some upstart you know scholars trying to challenge him, and he's just you know rhetorically challenging them. But it's not necessarily like everyone's walking away going okay, this is the state and this is the religion organization. I mean, it's not there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, you did a series talking about um, pastors and, mm. and sort of critiquing our idea that pastors are uh, sort of a jack of all trades. They're supposed to be the social media manager at the church as well as the, uh, um, let's call it the, uh, you know, the, the church board uh, head and the minister and a sort of um, best friend to everyone as well. And you are, you know, you spent um, some time focusing on what's the core of ministry. And it sounds like you're drawing for, uh, on, you're drawing from Paul there. I know you talk about Acts in that series as well, what 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 are you trying to help us understand about the role of a pastor in our, in our lives, and and what are you trying to help pastors uh, do as well? I, I think in short, I'm just trying to help us be better Adventists. I, I if we are if we truly want to stick to our primary text, then we need to get it right. And if we were 
in a denomination or faith, or if we decide to become a faith that takes ordination more seriously theologically. I mean, quite frankly, for us, it's, it's an administrative placeholder. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there is no spiritual con- conveyance of power or anything else. I mean, most of the scholars are pretty much unanimous on that agreement. And so this is really just an administrative tool to consolidate power. Mm-hmm. And if everybody were good faith actors, that's fine because everybody would be spiritually led by God, by the true spirit of God, right? But I, I challenge that, that assumption and I, and I assume that we are fallible and therefore bad faith actors can come into a system and corrupt it using uh, good faith tactics. And what I have kind of observed in, in about the 10 years of, I've, I've been born Adventist, but 10 years really committed to the administrative process and, and my ministry and, uh, and research and everything. And just notice how conferences are able to uh, distill information upward and then propagandize that information downward to where your local churches are no longer able to understand what's happening. And then you have pastors who are then uh, filtering by necessity of their employment uh, information that may not be the best for the local church. Oh. And so if you're not a, if you're not a, a 30 year, you know, fourth generation Adventist pastor with a long list of pedigree and allies, your ability to make waves or, 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 or correct or do your ministry is very hindered. And so you see a lot of young pastors uh, placed into uh, compromising situations where the needs of the local church are not the needs of the conference. And how do you bridge that? You bridge that by empowering the bottom. what, What happens is we have we've kind of eroded the power of the local church in this 20th century structure was meant to empower the local church. But now since we've we've. malign politicizing. We've created a, a, a kind of a curia of sorts where you have this inner network of power building and, and, and uh, of placement. You know, if you, once you're in the administrative door, it's like, it's their pathway to heaven, to the GC <laughs> and, and you're, and you're there, but everybody who's on the ground doing the work, the local church, you know, the people who are actually bringing in souls, bringing in the tithe, bringing in doing all of this real work, like they're actually empowering the work, uh, they, they're not noticed. And so you see a lot of really powerful methods, uh, powerful ministries that little places are doing that are effective, that are not reaching, not going upward, that are not becoming uh, uh, globalized or utilized in a universal way. Um, it's a time, I think it's, it's uh, to, to the pastor thing really quick, what happens now is with that pressure, the pastor is now required to occupy so many different spaces that we find in the scriptures that don't necessarily behoove them. Pastor is not a, a common term in the New Testament or the Old. Um, you're a shepherder, right? You are a poor person who cares for sheep. You're a nomad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so build that analogy correctly then theologically. Wow. And, and, and we we don't want the apostle because they're dangerous, right? We don't want the prophet because they're crazy. And and we don't want healers or tongue speakers because they're charismatic, right? And so what we have is this, we want to create this administrative elder. Well, the elder's position is the local church position. Yeah. 
And we've kind of, we've conglomerized this pasture into this, this monstrosity that is a day. And we see the fruit of it. They're, they're, we, we in ministry are falling prey to uh, addictions, broken marriages, abuse, uh, we're allegations or being around abuse and not being able to take care of it. We're being forced to be mental health counselors, crisis managers, and like building, you know, stewards. Like we have no project management experience. It's like you don't go to the seminary and learn how to do uh, uh, project management or or city management or or any of those things. Some people do, right? But that's not the norm for the pastor. The pastor is supposed to be a spiritual counsel, uh, which is important. And it's been minimized. And hopefully we can hopefully we can be aware of this and start kind of um, I would like to see in my lifetime that being articulated more. And and with and that's done through just giving your local pastor the support, financial support on the ground to develop their own administration, their own local church um, um, support, you know, to, to really get the work done. Yeah, one more uh, question on that before we begin to wrap up. It- I feel like one of the things that's um, driven that um, administrative uh, kind of weird relationship with the local pastor is almost a love-hate relationship. And I think part of it's driven perhaps by the specter of congregationalism. Anytime that a pastor really achieves um, a high level of of exactly the um, metrics that they're often judged on member, you know, growth in membership and growth in um, uh, tithes and offerings. If that gets too big, then it actually creates more tension and it becomes its own power center within, uh, you know, a conference or, um, even within the larger Adventist church. And let's be honest, I uh, have watched many a charismatic pastor grow in influence and then flame out and make, you know, disastrous mistakes that have harmed hundreds and even thousands of people. So I understand the concern, but that those are actually um, often, you know, while they're, they make a lot, they get a lot of attention, those, those sad stories. Uh, I think that they become uh, a a almost a blanket that's used to sort of smother out uh, any time. There's like a small level of uh, kind of spiritual growth that's allowed within a community and within and envisioning for a pastor. If they get too far, it gets too threatening. I don't know. What do you think? Is is congregationalism that threat that within? our kind of very tight administrative structure is that one of the drivers and what else do you see is is one of the fears that keeps people from really um, forming the communities that we could be i think congregationalism is a big problem for this denominational structure and the reality is is that we're already practicing it because what i what i'm envisioning is actually a tightening of communication and uh, you start wondering what's the purpose of our of a couple layers of conferences when you have the ability to do what we're doing right now, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, and we've proven in the 2020 that technology is robust enough to where we are able to actually do significant business without actually being present physically together. 
um, that changes how organizationally what and then we think about the bloatedness of our administration to pastors and or to uh, teachers or something like that. We actually function, local churches don't function together. So, but we don't have the tithe and offering to actually be effective. Hmm. So we're broken. We're like broken. We're like inefficient congregationalists, inefficient Baptists, right? Because we don't even keep the tithe to pay for our own ministries. We, we, we filter that up, which is, I, I believe that's still, there's still a place. I think it needs to be reorganized a little bit now. Um, but then I cannot figure out what's happening around me. And worst of all, we are all within, thinking of Barrier Springs now, thinking of here in Atlanta now, and many other urban centers or, or, or centers of Adventism, you're all serving the same demographic, the same zip code even sometimes. And multiple churches are, are trying to do the exact same thing with limited budget. Yeah. And so it, it would seem then that it would behoove a conference to think about if I'm afraid of congregationalism or something of that, or p- pastors becoming too powerful, or I, I would be, well, first thing, we know a system is broken when the only recourse a local church has is to withhold their tithe. Yeah. And so the only, so when, when, when the last recourse is to burn, the burn the house down, like if that's your only uh, bargaining block, we have a broken system. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, is if you want to keep pastoral power or things kind of distributed, then the conference, it behooves the conference to be more proactive in organizing local church sectors to target their ministries and you infuse them with real cash that they're already paying. You give them back their money in a way, whatever way it makes sense for now, but eventually should just keep it with an obligation that it comes into a trust based upon district or whatever it may be. So that the goal is your area churches need to improve the tithe distribution and, and membership. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter which church does it, and it doesn't matter which pastor does it. And pastors really don't matter anymore. It's about the local churches. Yeah. Now, then you've just placed pastors uh, there who to be, to be trained. You place pastors there who have the specific gifts needed to do what is necessary for that community. You don't, you don't put in just, you know, a preacher or an evangelist for a moment. Um, you're thinking more ground up holistically. Uh, now that we've solved... Uh Adventisms, uh, <laughs> I, and and, you and know. I hope there are problems to this, but like I, I want us to, yeah, I I think there's a way into this. I agree. I, I just we we sometimes oversimplify the problems, and I, I believe that's political. I I think it's again to try to keep what's happening consistent. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, number one, I want to have you back and 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 kind of chop it up again, exploring uh, some other ideas as well. But I want to wrap up actually uh, talking about you. And can you just tell me a little bit about um, where you grew up and, you know, some of your early uh, memories of thinking about Adventism? What, what's making you kind of devote so much of your thinking to the church, but also the larger kind of Christian um, commitment that we have? Uh, thinking about uh, faith and uh, justice and uh, deepening spirituality. Tell me a little bit about um, your journey. 
so in, in short form, maybe maybe in another time we can do a longer form of this. Sure. Uh, I grew up I grew up in the Mecca, um, Bering Springs, and I was raised in the system. And I was I left the system by by force. <laughs> I I was I I've always been one critical of authority structures and. And I think that's where I, I started falling in love early on. I started playing guitar, fell in love with the punk scene. I found a more authentic community in the rock and roll scene. I mean, people who take you as you are. Sure. Uh, I love I love this one sign I see um, right there in uh, St. Joseph area. It says, come in, wait, wear dress code not required. We will change. You will change later or something like that. It's, you know, dress as you are, we'll change will change you later. It's like this idea, like you really don't want, you don't like me the way I am. You will expect me to make these changes, but right now it's okay. And I, I fell into this kind of, if it's legalism, then y'all are hypocrites, right? If it's about practice, I'm seeing the worst of, you know, Adventism growing up, right? The corruption, racism. I I come from a active uh, racist uh, policies, you know, I've seen it, how it breaks things apart. Yeah. And then you find the community. And so I, I, I lived in that world for about 15 plus years. And I moved to Seattle uh, and still have wonderful friends that are in the industry. Uh, started doing live sound and events. And, and that's where I, I cut my teeth. And then I, I, I ended up having an experience. I, I ended up crashing my car. You know, one of those, those life life moments right and got away scott clean and and then a couple of mystic experiences the lord speaking and and i started going oh and then i started studying you know with a cigarette in my mouth started studying this stuff and you know fell into walter vyth and went on the right right wing you know went really really far zealot and quit the smoking and 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 the drinking and everything as well which was a very positive development but the extremism <laughs> was a problem. And then somebody reminded me of Ephesians and about the light. And I started thinking about Jesus as a light. And a light is not something you have to uh, expose. It's something that casts out darkness. And I was like, wait a minute. Why study the darkness when I can study the light? And that's what opened up my uh, experience into this research and then into Paul. And, and then really what has uh, driven me now is how do we how do we cherish the diversity of our extremity? Like the extreme craziness of our church is one of the most beautiful practices of faith that we can, that honors free will and human conscience. Conscience. If we really believe it, how do we nurture that, you know, instead of dogmatizing it? And, and so that's been my journey. And it was a, it was a rough one where I had to be corrected by my wife and, and by the gospel and, and other things and to where I am now, where I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in this radical corner, uh, breathing and, and trying to uh, think about how we uh, make our pastors less busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a, a message we can all get behind. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. And thank you for exploring these ideas with such um uh, authenticity and grace. I'm really glad that you're part of our community and I'm hoping that we can talk together again soon. This was an honor. I, I am praying for your work here. This is, um, this has been a really good project and it's, it's been, it's been awesome to have, especially during this time. So, um, we commend you. God bless you.
Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. 